Chapter Twenty Eight of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Eight. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted. Mrs. Tresevant twitched impatiently at the dainty bit of lavender kid that covered her dainty hand, her face all in a frown, and her eyes flashing with unusual fire. At last the pent-up torrent burst forth with one final twitch of the glove that tore it from wrist to finger. Mr. Tresevant, I'm not going to those meetings any more. I think the way that man preaches is perfectly horrid, making people feel as if they were miserable, horrid creatures that never did anything right. Not a single comforting or pleasant thing did he say tonight. I'm sure he had considerable to say about heaven. Is there nothing comforting and pleasant about that? Her husband asked this question in a tone half of sarcasm, half of gloom. He certainly was in no state to bestow the comfort that his fretful wife called for. No, there wasn't, she retorted, with increased impatience. Not a thing, for he made me feel as if I should never get there in the world, as if I wasn't worth going there anyway. I thought it was a minister's business to comfort people and cheer them up and all that sort of thing, instead of making them feel as gloomy as gravestones. I don't like such preaching nor such meetings, people crying all around me. I think it is perfectly dreadful. I don't see what possesses me to go. I've said almost every evening that I wouldn't go again. No one compels you to do so, Mr. Tresevant said coldly. I supposed, of course, you enjoyed them, so I have stayed at home with the baby for several evenings in order to give you the pleasure of going. Oh, now, Carol, that's just nonsense. You know just as well as I do that you stayed at home because you didn't want to go. Anne just worships Rosie and would stay with him any evening with all her heart. Anyway, I wouldn't have done as you did tonight. If a man asked me to kneel down, I declare I wouldn't have stood up like a post when everybody else was kneeling too. I think it was real mean. It wasn't treating the old man nice a bit. I wouldn't have done it for anything. Perhaps you would have done as duty prompted you, Mr. Tresevant answered with haughty dignity. At least we will hope so. Duty, his wife repeated irritably, as if the very mention of the word annoyed her. I must say I don't see how you can make duty out of that. It isn't wicked to kneel, is it? We will not discuss the subject, Laura, was Mr. Tresevant's lofty answer. Not at this time, at least. You seem to be in no mood for discussions of any sort. I'm not, quickly returned Mrs. Tresevant. I hate discussions. I always did. I hate them now worse than ever. That is the way that man talks. Now let us reason this thing out, he says, and then he reasons and argues and illustrates until he makes you feel as if you were absolutely a fool, and that everything you had been doing and saying and thinking all your life were silly and wicked. I don't like such things. I don't see what is the use of them. If half that that old man said tonight is true, then we are all simpletons together, worse than simpletons, real wicked people, you and I, and everybody, because we don't live at all like what he said, and there's no use in talking about heaven being comforting. A great elegant palace wouldn't comfort me any if it were all bolted and barred, and I couldn't get in. And that's just the way it seems as if heaven was tonight. It never has comforted me much anyway, because one had to die before one could go there, and I always was afraid of dying. It seems perfectly dreadful. It seems worse than dreadful to me tonight. 
Everything is awful, and I don't know what is the matter with me anyway. And the poor little bit of weary, trembling flesh and blood suddenly threw herself into a curled-up heap on the bed and sobbed outright. You are a marked specimen of the judiciousness of meetings of this sort, her husband said, regarding her complacently as a practical working out of his theory on the subject. Your nervous system has been all unstrung, and your imagination excited to such a degree that you have no idea what you think or feel about anything. And this is just the sort of result that I have believed would be obtained by such unwise proceedings. I should advise you to bathe your eyes and head in something cooling, and compose your mind for rest and sleep. I think your decision in regard to attending these meetings a wise one. Whatever may be said of their effect on the common mind, they evidently are not adapted to delicate, sensitive organizations. After this conversation, Mr. Tresevant, at least, was surprised to hear his wife the next afternoon negotiating with Anne, the favorite chambermaid, and Rossi's devoted admirer and slave, to take up her station beside the rose-lined crib for that evening. "'I shall not be late, Anne,' she said, as that individual volubly poured forth her willingness to sit beside him until the day broke in the morning. "'With all her heart, sure. "'It will not be later than ten o'clock. "'I am only going around the corner to the Park Street Church.' "'I thought you were not going to another of those meetings,' "'her husband said questioningly, "'surprise in his eyes and voice, "'as the door closed after Anne. "'I am going this evening,' she answered quietly, "'a little flush rising on her cheek "'in memory of her emphatic words of the evening before.' I've changed my mind, and decided that I want to go once more, anyway. And Mr. Tresevant, not having the care of the young tyrant in the crib to quiet his conscience with, having no letters that demanded immediate answer, and being withal anxious to listen to another of those strangely massive, strangely simple sermons, decided to accompany her. The church was not less crowded than on the preceding evening. Indeed, the sea of heads seemed greater. The meeting was not less solemn, the solemnity seemed rather to have increased. There was no recourse but to take a very back seat this time, that being the only one left. Jim Forbes and Jenny Adams were occupying it in company with two others, and by dint of crowding and some uncomfortableness, they managed to make room for Mr. and Mrs. Tresevant. At the close of a sermon that had been addressed more to Christians than to the unconverted, Dr. Willis descended from the pulpit, and seeming to take in with his searching gaze each separate face in the mass before him, these were the words he said. I know there are some before me, members in good and regular standing of churches, whose hearts are heavy to-night with a sense of unpardoned sin. They have no sense of the nearness of a Savior, or if he seems near, his presence fills them with terror instead of joy. I know there are such in this congregation, because of the conversation I have had with some of you, and because of other tokens which I will not stop now to explain. Now will not such listen to and heed the call that we give you to-night? Will you come forward to these vacant seats, and by your coming say, I want you to pray for me that I may find Jesus? Never mind how long you may have professed to know him. Never mind how earnestly Satan may whisper to you that it will look very strange for a professing Christian to take such a step. You are not obliged to listen to Satan." Christ stands ready to make you free. My heart is burdened to-night for those in our churches who have a name to live and who yet know nothing of the joy of salvation. Dear friends, let me beseech those of you who feel a lack in your religion, 
who feel that some way you do not possess your birthright, come and let us help you. Not that coming here will save you. Oh, no, you understand that as well as I do. There is no need for me to stop here to explain. Only how can we help you if we do not know who you are? And how much can you desire help if you are not willing to take so slight a means to secure it? Now, while we sing one verse, will you come? And any also not calling themselves Christians, who have any desire in their hearts after Christ tonight, come and let us know it. Immediately they began to sing, Lord, I come to thee for rest. There was a movement in the seat at the end of which Mr. Tresevant sat. A lady in the corner signified her desire to pass out. It was necessary for them all to file into the aisle in order to give her an opportunity. Mr. Tresevant stood waiting in the aisle, visible annoyance on his face. He did not approve of this conspicuous and unwise invitation. The lady was out and moving forward, so were others from all parts of the house. The rest of the occupants were reseated, all but Mrs. Tresevant and himself. She stood just ahead of him, apparently riveted to the spot. He touched her arm nervously. Attention was being directed to them. She glanced around, a rich flush on the fair child face, tears in her eyes. Then suddenly she shook her head, and turning from him passed swiftly up the aisle, and dropped into the end of the very foremost seat. Mr. Tresevant stood as if spellbound looking after her. Had one end of the massive church wall suddenly parted company with its surroundings, and gone to the front, he would not for a moment have seemed more amazed. His wife! gone forward in the Park Street Church to be prayed for, and he a minister of the gospel. Becoming suddenly aware of the fact that many eyes were on him, he precipitately retired into his seat, feeling sorely tempted to take his hat and rush from the room, leaving his foolish wife to reach home as best she might. Very little further knowledge of the meeting did he possess. He devoted himself to his own thoughts, and very gloomy ones they were. Bitterly did he regret not having prevailed upon his wife to remain at home. He pictured the scene that he should have with the excited, frightened, sobbing creature when once they were at home. He imagined her chagrin and annoyance, her vexation at him for not in some way checking her wild, heedless action, this part to come after the excitement had subsided. He groaned inwardly over the whole wretched business and the talk that would result from it, one of the hotel boarders joined them in their short homeward walk, so there was no opportunity for special conversation. Arrived at the privacy of their own rooms, Mrs. Tresevant did not seem to be in haste to say anything, neither did there seem to be any special excitement to subdue. She stood for some moments looking down on the fair treasure in the crib, then bent and pressed soft kisses on the sweet lips and flushed cheeks. Very quietly she disposed of her outside wrappings, then finally came over to the silent figure, looking at space from out the depths of the rocking chair. "'Are you displeased at what I did tonight, Carol?' She rested her hand half timidly on his arm and spoke in low, gentle tones. "'I am very much amazed,' he answered coldly. "'I was afraid you would be, but indeed I could not help it. I'll tell you all about it. I have thought all the week a great deal about these things, ever since I went to that first meeting.' I began to understand that something about me was wrong. I knew I did not feel nor act like other Christians. You know, Carol, I was never a member of the church until a little while before we were married. Mama said I ought to be because I was going to marry a clergyman. I didn't understand about it, and Dr. Lawrence came to see me, 
and he seemed to think it was all right, and so, you know, I united with his church. But all this past summer there have been times when I have been very unhappy. Mrs. Sales made me so, frightened me a great many times. I did not understand her at all. She looked at everything from a different standpoint from me. For a long time I thought it was because she was such a peculiar woman, different from everyone else, and she used to provoke me because she was uncomfortably good. Then after Del Bronson came, that explanation did not do any longer, for she is just as different from Mrs. Sales as day is from night, and yet in those things, the way they talked about religion, you know, and the way they lived it, they were just alike, and I began to watch people, and I found a good many were like them. Then I began to suspect that I didn't know anything about being a Christian, but it used to vex me to think so. I wanted to believe that I was all right, and I tried hard to, but the very first evening that I went to the Park Street Church I saw, oh, such a difference. I can't explain it to you, but I just knew that I had nothing in common with the Savior about whom they were talking, and I was so very, very miserable. Again and again I would resolve not to go there, but something seemed to force me there against my will. Tonight the misery reached its climax, and I felt that I must do something. When Dr. Willis invited the people forward, he just described me, and something seemed to say to me that I must go. I thought I could not, in my position, you know, and yet I felt that I should never have any peace again if I did not. I hope you are not offended with me, Carol? No, he said, in a voice still stiff and constrained. You, of course, had a right to do as you thought proper, and yet, Laura, if you felt the need of help, it seems only natural to me to think that I, your husband, could have helped you better than any of those strange ministers could possibly have done. Mrs. Tresevant drew a little sigh. It isn't that, Carol, she said earnestly. I haven't made you understand. I needed help, I felt it with all my heart. But not human help. I wanted to find the Lord. I knew he was precious to other people, in a way that was all blind to me. And I thought if I cannot just go down a church aisle to show him how much in earnest I am, I cannot expect him to come to me. I remembered your position, Carol, and that was why I hesitated at all. But I thought I could not possibly disgrace it more than by living the sort of life I had. I thought a great many people would understand just how I felt, and that in any case I must get rid of my dreadful burden or sink under it. And, Carol, I found help. Those ministers didn't help me that I know of, although I was very, very grateful to them for praying for me but the Savior himself came and sought me, and seemed to take hold of my hand. I gave myself to him as I never did before, and he gave me rest and peace. I think I shall be a different wife now, Carol. He drew her down to him and pressed his lips to her glowing cheek. You do not need to be, he said gently. You are very dear to me just as you are. He did not mean it, all of it. Not that he did not love his wife after a certain fashion, but there had been a hundred, perhaps a thousand things, that he had wished were different. There had been no end to the chances for improvement in her that he could see at times. But just then, with that soft, new light glowing in her eyes, with a sort of childlike pathos in her voice, as she told over her simple, solemn story, she had suddenly seemed unutterably dear to him. He watched her with a sort of half-reverence as they went about preparing for the night. He recognized a new light in her face. She has certainly gone up higher, he said to himself. Yes, she had, gone even to the foot of the cross of Christ and found acceptance there. 
End of chapter 28. Recording by Tricia G.